Joel Engel, a Los Angeles-based writer who frequently writes for the New York Times, tells of an experience he once had aboard a Los Angeles public bus. And he writes this incident. Considering the large crowd inside, the lack of voices startled me. Only a rustle of newspapers and the groaning diesel engine broke the silence of this public bus. Several well-dressed men stood in the aisle, so I assumed all the seats were taken. As I moved towards the rear of this public bus, I spotted an empty aisle seat on a double bench and wondered to myself why people were standing and there was still an unoccupied seat. I saw that next to this unoccupied seat was a young man who was staring out the window, heavily breathing. I noticed his face was covered with what appeared to be fibroid tumors. His long, filthy, matted hair and tattered clothing also made him unappealing. He was obviously homeless, and it was easy to guess why. He sat with shoulders hunched and eyes transfixed through the window. Nearly paralyzed with pity, I gave silent thanks that my young daughter wasn't with me, with her always asking those inevitable questions about one who looks different in a not-too-discreet voice. But it was because of her that I finally sat down next to this young man in that unoccupied seat. It was because of her, because the kind of man I wanted my daughter's father to be is one who sits in a bus next to someone whose only crime is extreme ugliness. I can't pretend that I relaxed. My left shoulder and arm scrunched involuntarily. He continued to stare out the window without acknowledging my presence. The bus made one more stop before entering the freeway. Several people boarded. I saw an elderly woman walk towards the rear. I waited for anyone else to offer her a seat, and when none did, I stood in motion for her to sit in my seat. Suddenly, I heard her say, No, I don't want to sit there next to him. She said loudly with no concern for who might hear what she said. It is painful to hear this story. Many of us, I'm sure, this morning, having heard it, are appalled by the insensitivity of this elderly woman. We may or may not be able to imagine this happening in our so-called Christian country. Perhaps it could have happened on the MRT or the LRT or the buses and public transportation we take. But for sure it does happen in our country every day, especially in a city of over 16 million. But more than that, it happens every Sunday morning in churches across our country. It has been happening in churches ever since the first century, whether intentionally or unintentionally, which is why James, the writer of the book of James, has to address the issue of favoritism as early as the founding of the church in the first century. It is interesting that in the context of declaring one's faith louder than words to an unbelieving world, that one of the clearest evidences of our relationship, our genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, is that we do not show favoritism. 
We want to see this morning and examine how ending favoritism is a clear evidence of a genuine faith we have in Jesus Christ as we continue our sermon series entitled Louder Than Words. In this series, in our study of the book of James, we're looking at actions that Christian brothers and sisters must demonstrate if they are to proclaim louder than words to an unbelieving word, an unbelieving world of their genuine faith, true faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that the very essence of the gospel message is a message that ends favoritism and it is inconsistent with partiality. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2, as we exposit verses 1 to 13. James, chapter 2, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 to 13, as we take a look at how ending favoritism is a way by which we shout out to the world about our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at me at James, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James writes, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James begins very clearly this portion of the letter with an admonition against showing favoritism for how we treat one another. It was a problem then, it is a problem today. Apparently in the churches of his time, There were those who treated one another differently, even in the community called the church. And James states very clearly, this must stop. Because of all the people in the world who should not do this, are those, verse 1 tells us, who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people who should not be doing this are Christians. And yet that is exactly what was happening in the body of Christ. Favoritism or partiality is the preferential treatment of someone who has equal claim and rights. But because you like them better or you have a natural affinity or attachment to them, you give them special preference. It's interesting to note that one of the things that makes us most upset in life is when we feel that we have been treated unfairly. Isn't that correct? When we feel that life has not been fair to us, we get angry, we get discouraged, we get mad. All we're asking is that others treat us fairly. But it's interesting, while we demand that from others, when we treat others, it's often through a veneer of favoritism. We're not often very fair. But we show favoritism because of a person's looks, their profession, their possessions, their lifestyle, their education, their money, their position, their fame, etc. Like today, back then, in the time of James, the church had a problem with showing preference specifically to people on the basis of their social economic status. Look what James writes in verses 2 and 3. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here at my footstool. 
James is describing a situation, perhaps a true situation, where someone enters into the synagogue, the local meeting place of that time, and the person who walks in is a man you just know is wealthy. He has on the bling, he's got on his gold rings, he's got on his fine clothes, and he's followed by someone who is in tattered, filthy clothes. Like today, there is an usher manning the door, and the usher sits this wealthy man in a place of prominence while he tells the poor man, Ah, you just stand. If you don't want to stand, you can just sit at my feet. Could we imagine this happening today, this morning, in our church? Are we willing to place people in places of prominence just because of who they are? Even if they come late? What is James's assessment of this situation? Look at verse 4. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and have become judges with evil thoughts? Here in verse 4, James asks a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. Have you shown partiality amongst yourself? The answer is yes, and if we're honest with ourselves, we often do this even in our church. And what is wrong with this action is that this is something Jesus would never have done. This is not how Jesus operates. And favoritism is a reflection, verse 4, of the evil thoughts of your own mind. You see, what James wants to make abundantly clear is that there is no place for favoritism. And there is no place for favoritism, especially in the church, much less the community in which you interact with. For those who claim to know Jesus Christ, favoritism must not impact their action. And our church is not immune from this, especially in our Asian culture and context, where we just simply love to lavish upon one another favors with the hopes of perhaps receiving favors in return, wanting someone to owe us, or perhaps it's just exactly how we operate. In our culture often, we just love to shower people with favors. There have been times in our church where we've shown favoritism and even preferential treatment to someone or a family because they've contributed much to this church. Or perhaps they are in leadership positions. But we have tried these many years, these, this past decade... To change this culture in our church. Why? Because of an interaction I had with someone 12 years ago. And I still vividly remember it. 12 years ago I ran into someone. And invited them to our church. Grace Christian Church. The person said to me. Pastor. I will never step foot into your church again. I asked her why. She said, Pastor, I've been trying your church for these past few weeks, trying to see if I would be a fit in your church. Back then, we only had one service. And as I came to your church, I observed that one of your ushers was always greeting someone who was a very prominent businessman and always greeted him with a vibrant good morning and just a warm welcome. I would often follow behind this person, and I would not hear a word of welcome from the usher. I tried to make an excuse. I said, come on, give us another chance. Maybe the usher didn't know who you were. 
um, you know, our Asian ushers tend to be shy. And these were her words to me, Pastor. This usher knows me full well. In fact, I taught her children. But I'm just a poor teacher who perhaps isn't welcomed in your church. And to this day, I'd still run into her in some social gatherings. And to this day, she's never stepped foot back into this church. I know this is the experience of one. But it was a wake-up call then for our church more than a decade ago that I told our staff favoritism has to end. That's why some of you now know why our church has stringent policies and why we hold to them because it prevents favoritism in the church. We don't care who you are in terms of your family name or your wealth or how much you've contributed. The church simply cannot show favoritism to be an effective witness and testimony to an unbelieving world. Apparently, this was such a big deal to James that he's going to go on to elaborate and give us three reasons why favoritism and partiality in the church and even in the community must end so that we can be a testimony that speaks louder than words. Look at the first principle found in verses 5 to 7. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Here in these three verses, James poses three questions, three rhetorical questions, where the answer is yes. The first question in verse 5, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which we promise to those who love him? The first question deals with God choosing the poor of the world to be blessed by him. This echoes the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 3, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, those whom God has chosen to bless, should we as Christians reject the very people God chooses to bless in his own way? In verse 6, the second question is making a general statement that typically the wealthy use their wealth to get their way. It can come in the form of legal means or physical means, bullying their way around. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. God is saying, I don't deal with you guys in this way. And so you should not also deal with the more unfortunate and the least fortunate in such manner. The third question in verse 7 speaks to the general observation that the rich usually speak against Christ. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? We know it's tougher for those who are wealthier to come to know Christ because they rely on their own successes. They make fun of those who have a faith, a Christian faith. They say, why do you believe in such nonsense? The hard work of your two hands is what gets you places in this world. And the implication is, why would you give them more honor and look upon them with greater favor if they have a greater propensity to mock the things of Christ? You see, the point of these three rhetorical questions gives us our first principle, number one, of your taking notes. Favoritism does not see as God sees and questions His sovereignty. 
Number one, favoritism does not see as God sees and questions His sovereignty. These three questions remind us that God loves all people. He treats all people equally. And if we are to see as God sees and we are to act as God acts and we are to mimic as God does, then we should treat all people equally, much more in the community called the church. If you favor one over the other, then you do not see as God sees. There's an old adage which you know, don't judge a book by its cover. The truth of the matter is, when a person we meet for the first time looks as they do, or acts as they do, we don't understand the circumstances of what that person has gone through. We don't know their backgrounds. We don't know if they're going through a rough patch in their life. We don't know if they're having a bad day. We don't know if there's some deep pain through the loss of a child or the loss of something in their life that they're going through. We just don't know. And if we begin to make judgment calls on someone else's life that God has sovereignly allowed it to happen, then we question His sovereignty. Our responsibility is simply to treat everyone equally. That's our responsibility. Favoritism does not see as God sees, and it calls into question His sovereignty. And that is not our responsibility. That's why we have a new initiative through our social media channel called Faces of Grace. I think many of you have seen it. Thousands have. It's to give glory to God as He continues to work in the lives of the people of our church. And we plan to highlight 50 for our 50th years and perhaps more if it blesses many. But more than giving glory to God, another reason why we're doing this is to show forth the diverse type of people who come and attend our church. You see, there's a notion in the outside community that only people who worship at Grace Christian Church are the really goody-goody type of people who come out of the school. And yet what they don't know is that the people like you who come to this church are men and women with a wide variety of background and experiences, many, many broken, yet who are loved by the Lord and are welcomed into this church. Because we as a church want to love as God loves. And we want to see as God sees. And in fact, when we were thinking about choosing whom to highlight or whose stories to tell, I told the team working on it, please do not highlight any prominent people in our church, people who come on stage, people who get a lot of limelight. Now, they may have great stories of grace. What we want to show is that God is working the lives of men and women who are so-called ordinary, but God is moving in their lives in a tremendous way. And He's equally dispensing His grace and love and mercy to everyone in this congregation and around the world. And that's why if you haven't seen it, the first two stories which have come out these two weeks are powerful. story of how one had dabbled into witchcraft and is now a saved child of God. Another who left his family business because he felt that working in his family's business that was not doing things ethical is inconsistent with his Christian faith and so he ventured out on his own. Powerful testimonies of how God is working through the lives 
of ordinary people. Don't miss out on meeting some of these things that God is doing in the lives of others just because you have a preconceived notion of who they are and how they should be. The second principle is found in verses 8 to 11. Look with me. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. Now you may be thinking, we're favoring the poor over the rich, but that's not the case. In fact, in verse 8, there's a general principle. We are to treat everyone as they should be treated, which is equally. Treating everyone as you would be want to be treated. If you want the same fairness bestowed upon you, then you give out that same fairness. And if you continue to show partiality, then you are guilty of breaking God's commands. And verse 9 clearly states it, you commit sin. You see, number two here is the second principle. Favoritism is a sin. Favoritism is a sin. In fact, when God gave the Mosaic law to the people of Israel, which no longer applies to us, but you can note the heart of God, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. In the eyes of God, favoritism is a sin. And so my friends this morning, if somehow you have the notion that you are owed something by this church, or that the pastor needs to pay special attention to you because you've been in the church longer than someone else, or because you've done more for the church, or you have seniority over someone else, or you've been more faithful than you expect more, then please check your hearts. Because the expectation of favorable dealings in the church is a sin the Bible says. The expectation that somehow the church body owes you something more than what others deserve because of your status within this body is a sin, so check your hearts. Again, how does the church guard itself against this sin of favoritism? We have policies that do not handcuff the church, but they are set for to ensure that even the church staff checks itself from not showing favoritism to people they may know. It's very natural. And so, for example, when it comes to registering for things, we have a first-come, first-served policy. I remember a few years ago, there was a case where a couple, who I knew very well, a friend of mine, wanted to get married at our church. And I encourage them, please turn in the full requirements uh, to the church so that you can reserve a date for your wedding the popular dates when people want to get married often have to be reserved a year in advance. But perhaps, I don't know why, they thought they knew me because they talked to me. Somehow it was blocked off on my calendar. But I told them, you better turn it in. There's a process in this. Well, they didn't do it. And there was a, another couple that was relatively new but filled all the requirements of getting married in this church. And they turned in their wedding requirements 30 minutes earlier than the first couple. 
30 minutes. And we accepted their application, and they were given that date. Well, you can understand that the losing couple wasn't very happy. They were mad. Kind of implied that, don't you know who we are? We've been in this church much longer than them. And today, they are no longer at this church. And while we miss them, I miss them, I can say in all good conscience, we did the right thing. We did the right thing. To be a testimony to the world, there must be no partiality in the local body called the church. We see it often, even in the Reformation tour that booked up in a few days, the last slot was taken by two church members, both friends of mine, one placing their registration an hour before the other. But it avoided great conflict because the rules were already in place. You see, my friends, the people in the church don't understand that the church cannot show favoritism. And if they're going to get angry, and if they leave the church, that's fine. Because we are not willing to lose our testimony to a world who is looking at how we act and how we operate. And we're not going to risk the testimony to the best of our ability with the help of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to lose our testimony to the world to grant you a favor to show exemption. That means to please God. Whatever a person's background, they're welcomed into the church with the same joy and the same fervor of welcome that anyone else would receive. Rich or poor, we strive to give you the same level of pastoral care and love and discipleship from this church. You can simply put in the eyes of God, favoritism is a sin. Now some of you may be thinking, out of all the issues, pastor, of how to express ourselves to the world, favoritism isn't really that big of a deal. Yeah, we know it's a sin. It says it right there in verse 9, but why do you make such a big deal out of it? In fact, we all have a natural affinity in liking the certain people over the others. Just let it be. Well, I'm not the one making a big deal out of it. James is. Look at verse 10 and 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder you become transgressor of the law. What verse 10, 11 shows us is that indeed it is a big deal in the eyes of God because it is sin. Just because you do everything right and show a little favoritism, you may think it's okay, but it's not okay in the eyes of God. If you break one command of God, then you are guilty of all. You and I cannot pick and choose which one of God's command to follow. In fact, in verse 11, James uses two more sins to note this principle. If I were to ask you as a congregation this morning, which is worse, murder or adultery? Which is worse, murder or adultery? I think 100% of you would raise your hand and tell me, Pastor, murder is worse. Taking of one's life, yeah, adultery is bad. But murder, I mean, that's the ending of someone's life. I'd have to agree with you. But if I were to give you another option, which is worse? Adultery or favoritism? All of you would say, adultery, terrible. That's probably worse than favoritism. 
Adultery is the worst of the two. Yes, while acknowledged, there are differences in the consequences of sin. And yet, the point in verse 11 is that in the eyes of God, sin is sin, and you have violated His command. You may not have ever murdered or committed adultery, but if you've shown favoritism, then you have the same guilt sin as the one who has committed adultery and the one who has murdered. And that's pretty serious. To God, favoritism is a pretty big deal. And he calls it a sin. That's why he has no place in the body of Christ. And it is no place in a believer's life. The third principle found in verses 12 to 13. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here in verses 12 to 13, James reminds us that one day we will be judged by God. Yes, currently we are under the law of liberty and the law of grace. We are free to do whatever we want with the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. But if we choose to show favoritism, then be aware because as Christians we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And God's judgment will be fair without partiality. And how will he judge? Verse 13. He will punish those who have shown partiality with what they deserve. A loss of spiritual reward that befits those who have dispensed favoritism in what they do. But if we've shown kindness and mercy and equality in how we deal with all types of people, then the Bible says God who sees all will treat us and judge us in the same manner when he assesses our life at that great judgment day. He will show forth the same kindness and mercy and equality and equity in how we have dealt with others. That's what the Bible says in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, from these two verses, I want to draw out a third principle, number three. Favoritism, number three, is the opposite of grace. Favoritism is the very opposite of grace. You see, what goes around comes around, if I can so put it in a colloquial manner. If you dispense grace, then that is how you will be judged. But favoritism is the opposite of grace. It has nothing to do with grace. Now, you may note some similarities. Favoritism is the granting of special exemption. Pastor, you tell me, isn't that showing grace? Grace is granting favor to one who is truly undeserving. Unmerited favor. The granting of favor to the one who is truly undeserving. While favoritism is the granting of undeserved favor to those who we think deserve it. I hope you can see the nuanced difference. And because when you can understand the nuanced difference, the implication of why favoritism is so dangerous is that it masks itself as grace. Favoritism masks itself as grace. It is not grace when you grant favor because then we become the arbiter of that which along belongs to God. He's the one who dispenses grace. And we take on the responsibility of that which is not ours. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ 
is to show forth the grace of Jesus Christ through our actions in how we extend equal kindness to all. How we love equally to all people is how the world sees God's grace through Christ through our lives. Because each man, each man, and each woman is worth receiving equal treatment. God, who alone is the arbiter of dispensing grace, is the one we live for. And if he tells us we are to treat others with equity, then that is what we're called to do, to show forth his grace. This week I came across this poem entitled, What's a Man's Worth? What's a Man's Worth? What's a Man's Worth, does anyone know? Is he measured by riches, by friend or foe? Can we tell by his virtues, his station in life, his accent, his color, his peace or his strife? The length of his hair, the shape of his nose, his smile or his handshake, the cuts of his clothes. What's a man's worth? We turn to our guide and Christ gives his answer for each man I died. The worth of each person is the worth of having the Son of God, God himself, die for us. And everyone else. So if you ever want to think yourself greater than someone else. Or belittle one over another. Then you need to understand. That God died equally for all people. And that by believing in him. They have the equal opportunity to have eternal life. That is why I said earlier. The gospel message is a message of equality that debunks and throws away favoritism. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 35, when there were a group of Christians who wanted to keep out another group of people from coming to know Christ, God sent Peter to interact with a man by the name of Cornelius. And after that interaction in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 35, Peter proclaims this. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. God shows no partiality. Favoritism has nothing to do with grace. Because it's very easy in our lives to justify our giving of favors to others as a means by which we give them grace. But God is the arbiter of that. I close with this illustration. I read it in the book, Being the Body by Chuck Colson and Ellen Vaughn. It tells the story of the late pastor Max Cadenhaud, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Naples, Florida. Pastor Max riveted his congregation one day with a bold confession. My message today is on the parable of the Good Samaritan, Pastor Max announced. But let me start with a story, a true one. Do you congregation remember when last year the Brown family came forward to become members of our church and to join our church? Everyone nodded. They remembered 
because the Browns were a very influential, prominent family. Well, Pastor Max said, on that very same day, a young man also came forward and gave his life to Jesus Christ. I could tell he needed help, and we counseled him. Do you remember him? No one in the congregation nodded. No one remembered him. The pastor continued, we worked with the Browns. We got them plugged into the community. They were a prominent family in our community. And to have them in our church, wow, that's an amazing thing. And we got them into committees. We got them serving in the church. They've been a a wonderful family in our church community. And when he said that, Pastor Max heard a, a lot of amens from the congregation. Well, this young man, well, we lost track of him. Until yesterday, Pastor Max continues... That is, as I was preparing today's message on the Good Samaritan, I picked up a paper, and there was that young man's picture in that newspaper. And the reason he was there is because he had just shot and killed an elderly woman. Chins dropped throughout the congregation as the pastor continued. I never followed up on that young man. It would take a lot of my time It wasn't worth following up when we had a family like the Browns to absorb in the church. I'm the pastor who saw the man in trouble and crossed to the other side of the road. I am not the good Samaritan. I am a hypocrite. More of this kind of somber honesty in the church would be healthy for us. Whether we admit it or not, We go after prominent families. We go after the influential thinking. If we can just convince this family to come, or that family to come, or that person to come, or this person to come, boy, it would really make our church a wonderful place. But then we would be doing the very same thing of that usher in James chapter 2. And those we consider unimportant, well, we don't care whether they come to church or not. If we lose them, it's fine. My friends, that is the danger of favoritism. Those we consider unimportant are very important in the eyes of God. And I love how our church today, if you see so many volunteering and serving, if you remember 10 years ago, they weren't. But we as a church community have begun the process of culture change to see that each person has a unique gift to offer to the body of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. Their talents, the Bible says, are for us as a church body to help us and to grow. If there is favoritism in our church today, it needs to end once and for all. It has no place in this church. It has no place in the kingdom of God. It has no place for men and women who call themselves Christian. May God give us wisdom when our hearts are turned to favoring one over the other, that we would check our hearts knowing that it is a sin. Because one day, all of us who have placed our trust in Jesus will stand before the heavenly throne. We'll all get to heaven. 
And on that day, we will praise and thank God. You know why we'll thank Him? We'll thank Him for all eternity because He gave every one of us the equal opportunity to come to know Him. We will be praising God because He was not partial to us. He dispensed equality and equity so that whosoever will may come to know Him. The very reason we will be in heaven is because God ended favoritism to the cross of Jesus Christ. All those who have been bought with the shed blood of Jesus Christ should get rid of partiality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is convicting even unto my soul. There are times in the sinfulness of who I am, even as a pastor, I will show favoritism, justifying it as simply grace. Father, help me to see as you see. Help this church and the body of Christ, of the men and women that make up Grace Christian Church, to welcome all of all social economic level, of all types of people, with the same welcome we would welcome a friend. So that this church, ending favoritism, will shout louder than words to an unbelieving world that Jesus Christ and His death on the cross is for all. May the power of the cross and the message it brings ring clearly through this congregation and how we treat one another. In Jesus' name we pray.